Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Justin J. Wee. It said over 40,260 men online now. I said, well, get ready for number 40,261, honey. Yeah. Bam. That and more. But before that, have you gotten yourself a copy of the Risk book yet? It really is a phenomenal phenomenal thing to own and you know it's in paperback form or audiobook or ebook and it's 37 of the very best stories we've ever had on the podcast completely rewritten for the page plus interviews with the storytellers there's people like Michael Ian Black and T.S. Madison Mark Marin Aisha Tyler Jonah Ray Lily Taylor Paul F. Tompkins A.J. Jacobs and Dan Savage in this book Ilana Glazer of Broad City says Risk gives a platform to stories rarely heard, to people rarely represented, and their most insane experiences. This book pushes us to live lives that inspire stories like these. And because it's such an amazing mix of gorgeously beautiful tear-jerking stories and shocking scary stories and outrageously hilarious stories, it's a perfect gift to share with friends and family. So go give it a good review on Amazon and look for The Risk Book wherever books are sold or at theriskbook.com. Also, I want to give a little shout out to our latest Patreon patrons who have donated $25 or more per month. That's Mike Willis and Francisca and David Ortman. Thank you so much, guys. It really means the world to us that our fans help us out over at Patreon patreon.com slash risk where there is a ton of bonus content there's extra stories there's personal check-ins from me there's interviews with the staff there's remastered episodes from the earlier years and there's ad-free episodes every week that is all at patreon.com slash risk now here's the show Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Wolfgang Muthspiel and Brian Blade behind me now. That is a mouthful right there. This is the best of Risk number 15. We love these best of Risk episodes. They're the perfect episodes to share with people who have never heard the show before. They're great introductions because they're such a great mix of funny, scary, beautiful, all over the map. Some of our very best stuff from the past, I don't know, six or 
or seven months. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Justin J. Wee, but before that, our very dear friend Ray Christian, who uh, has the show What's Ray Saying? You should check out that podcast for sure. But before that even... We're going to hear from Ryan Webster, who shared this hilarious story we're going to start with the last time that Risk was in Milwaukee. You can find Ryan on Facebook at Ryan Webster Milwaukee, and here he is now with a story we call Exposure. Right after I graduated from college in 2004, I went on this East Coast road trip with my two good friends, Jeff and Craig. We piled into Jeff's bright red 1988 Pontiac Grand Am. We listened to Rusted Root for 14 consecutive hours. (laughs) And we ended up in New York City. Our first stop was at Jeff's friend's place. It was this tiny Manhattan studio apartment where we were planning to crash on the hardwood floor. So we met Jeff's friend, and he was gay, and he says to us, hey guys, I just discovered this great new gay bar. Do you guys want to check it out? I was like, ah, because at that point in my life, I really didn't want to be associated with anything gay. I went to an all-boys Catholic high school, Marquette High School. Okay, you're familiar. So you know, yeah, so you know everyone made fun of us and said that we were gay. You're so gay, man. You're not cool. So we were always doing whatever we could to just prove that we were straight. And the other thing was that growing up, I wanted to be like my dad. He's the kind of guy, he could be easily confused with Bruce Willis. He's real strong and muscular. He's a carpenter, so he can fix anything. Uh, He drives a big truck. Some of his favorite phrases growing up were, no whining, no crying, and don't be a pansy. So I just, I developed this association of masculinity with being macho and being unafraid and being straight. But here we were in New York City. We're on this road trip. We're feeling kind of adventurous. So we went for it. Three straight guys and a gay guy walk into a gay bar. <laughs> and... It's going fine. We're having fun. Uh, It was a little different than, like, the bars I was used to. It was a little more upscale, I guess. It it didn't have, like, pool tables or dartboards. It had, uh, you know, these, like, elaborate glass light fixtures and um, these, like, smooth, curved, bright blue couches. Uh, One bathroom for men and women. We thought that was kind of (laughs) cool. So then this show starts. There's a stage, this middle-aged guy, he's wearing a bow tie. He comes up on stage. He seems like he's kind of like the MC. He's like, hey, is anybody here from out of town? And for some reason, my hand just (laughs) shot up (laughs) like a rocket. It was a huge mistake. (laughs) 
And he goes, yeah, where are you from? I was like, Wisconsin. He's like, great, come on up here on stage. And I just felt this huge rush of anxiety fill my whole body and my heart starts pounding. So I guess you should know I'm 37 years old now. I know, I, I look younger than that. Thank you, thank you. I was 23 at the time. For the majority of my life, this has been my deepest fear. Standing on a stage in the spotlight being recorded. I don't know, I've always had these thoughts in my head like, what are people going to think about me? How are people going to judge me? Are people going to make fun of me for this? So I've always just had this fear of being seen by people, of sharing myself, of being my real self. When I was a kid, my, my dad was like the first guy ever to get a camcorder. I don't know if you guys remember those back in the 80s, like this big old box that you put on your shoulder. It's got like a full-size VHS tape on the inside. He used to videotape everything. And whenever the camera panned over to me at family parties, I just, I just like pooped my pants, like I just, or hid behind the couch or whatever. Like I felt like whatever I said or did was just going to be watched and laughed at for years to come. So I didn't say much for 22 years. I just kept building this shell around myself. I couldn't risk being unique or creative because I was afraid I was going to get made fun of. There was this one time in high school I was hanging out with some kids from the jazz band. We were singing that song from Snoopy. So yeah, we were cool, don't worry. So we're, we're singing that song, and it gets to that part, it kind of builds up, and I, I, I just let loose. I was like... And then I stop, and I look around, and it's like silent. And everybody's looking at me, and this one kid goes, Dude, whoa, that was weird. I was like, what? He's like, oh, I just, I just never seen you get so excited before. You usually just sit there and don't say anything. Like, it wasn't like a super traumatic thing, but I just feel like I had all these experiences like, man, there's, like, there's something wrong with me. I wished I knew what it was and how I could bury it so no one could see it. Actually, I didn't even realize that I had these insecurities till towards the end of college. I read the book, The Art of Happiness, by the Dalai Lama. It helped me to ask myself the question, why am I terrified to raise my hand and participate in my classes? And I got a little inspired. I wanted to overcome my fears, so I signed up for this public speaking class. Over the course of that semester, I had to give a bunch of speeches, and every one of them I was terrified for days and weeks beforehand, and maybe for like the first half of the speech. But later in the speech and kind of over the course of the semester, I got, I got a little more comfortable. Like I felt good about what I had done in that class. So on that night in New York City, as I'm approaching the stage, my heart pounding, I remember, okay, public speaking class. 
This is just like public speaking class. I can do this. I'm just going to get up there. The MC is going to ask me some questions about Wisconsin. All I'll have to do is answer the questions. So I get up there, and the MC brings up this other guy on stage, Mark from Boston. He's short, white guy, kind of skinny. He kind of looks like me, actually. <laughs> and, and then the MC goes, okay, guys, take off your shirts. It's time for the whipped cream show. I was like, oh my God, how do I get out of this? I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what do I do, what do I do? But it happened so fast, he just said that, and the crowd got excited. The crowd goes, yeah! And this guy Mark here, he's excited. He goes, yeah! And he rips his shirt off. And I'm thinking, hell no! But the words that came out were, yeah! And I, and I ripped my shirt off! And I'm standing on this stage with no shirt on. And for those of you listening to the podcast, I'm definitely standing on this stage right now with no shirt on. And believe me, despite your applause, it feels just as awkward now as it did back then. Any sense of confidence I had gained from public speaking class, public speaking, obliterated. Now, I just, I'm way over my head here. And then the MC has Mark sit down in this chair and he takes out some whipped cream and he takes it and he sprays some on Mark's shoulders and chest. And then he sprays some on his back and on his arms. And all over his face. And Mark is just covered with whipped cream. And then he goes, Hey, Ryan. You're going to do a sexy dance and lick off all the whipped cream. I was like, oh my God, again, how do I get out of this? I'm thinking like, okay, maybe I'll just say like, like guys, I'm so sore. Like I just, I just came here to hang out with my friends. I'm, I'm not actually gay. I don't, I don't want to lick whipped cream off of Mark's body. But, but again, it, it happened so fast. He just said that. And the crowd goes, yeah. And Mark's here. He goes, yeah. And I was just like, okay. And I just gathered up all my courage. And I started dancing. And Mark's here. And I'm just, I'm grinding. I'm grinding up on Mark. And I'm licking the whipped cream. 
I'm licking it, and the sweetness of the whipped cream is mixing in my mouth with the flavor of Mark's aftershave. And the, the saltiness of his back sweat. <laughs> but I just keep dancing, and I... I start working the crowd a little bit. I don't, I don't even know. I don't know what I was doing. I was not myself. I was like this other character that had stretched so far outside of myself. I don't even know who I was or what was happening. But I made it through. I danced to the end of that song. I licked all the whipped cream off of Mark's body. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. In the end, there was this whipped cream kiss. Yep, I did that too. And I came off the stage and the crowd was going wild. And I was, I was released from the stage and I picked up my shirt and I sat back down. And my friends, they just kind of looked at me. For those of you listening to the podcast, I just put my shirt back on (laughs) so you can open your eyes now. Yeah, my friends, they just kind of looked at me like, whoa. (laughs) There were no high fives. (laughs) There were not even any words. Jeff just looked at me, his face said, dude, what the hell were you thinking? And Craig's face said, dude, I cannot wait to get home and tell the rest of our friends about this. (laughs) And then this guy came up to us and he's like, hey guys, that was amazing. I got the whole thing on videotape. You guys want a copy? I was like, "Oh, oh my God, that was before cell phone cameras even. This guy got the whole thing on a camcorder. (laughs) Yup, just like my dad. (laughs) My friends were super excited to get this tape. I was like, guys, I will not be friends with you if you take this tape. For some reason, I just had this fear that like, if I ever ran for political office, this tape of me licking whipped cream was gonna surface. So I'm off stage now. I'm kind of like snapping back into my normal self. I felt ashamed and embarrassed. I was like, man, like, what did I just do? Like, that wasn't manly. That wasn't cool. I'm going to get made fun of for a lifetime for this. I was like, you know, I, every time I try to step out of my shell, like, I make a fool of myself. And I really, I, I wanted to go back into my shell and... Hopefully people wouldn't notice that I'm not normal. And that's how I felt about this story for most of the last 15 years. I've been embarrassed and and I wanted to hide it. But actually, like, working on my fear and opening myself up is kind of like the main thing that I've been working on for the last 15 years. I've come a long way. Uh, I became a teacher and I even became an actor and and a musician and a storyteller and doing these things that I never imagined that I'd be doing. So it was a couple years ago that I was trying to brainstorm a story for a story slam. And I asked myself, 
What story am I most afraid of telling? And when this story came to mind, I was like, wow, I'm actually willing to tell this story. And I didn't feel like I have to hide it anymore. And I also don't feel like being a man means being tough and macho anymore. I, you know, I've become my own person. I can let my dad be my dad, and I can let my friends be my friends, and, and I can be me. For me, being a man means being open and vulnerable. Uh, it means developing courage by risking being afraid, taking the challenges that life throws at me and not resisting them, but uh, just saying yes to them and using those as opportunities to grow. So now I can finally say I'm proud and I'm glad that I went to that gay bar. And I'm glad that I went on stage and took my shirt off the first time. <laughs> and the second time. Okay, thanks. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm even glad I, I licked all that whipped cream. Thanks, everybody. The summer of 1972 was one of the hottest summers on record in Richmond. More than two straight weeks of 95 degree heat. So when the crowd formed around the body, everyone agreed it was probably the heat that killed that woman. I first saw her during the winter time when she was pleading to be let in the back door by a neighbor at Mr. Woodson's house. She cried and she begged to be let in. She looked a bit younger than my mama, who was around 45 at the time, so maybe she was around 30 years old. Her dress seemed a bit small, but clean. She was skinny, and her exposed skin on her hands and her face and her legs were dirty. And her medium-sized afro seemed poorly maintained for the times, and she was certainly not dressed for the cold day outside. She continued to beg and plead, Please, please let me in, Woodsy. I'm going to freeze to death, please. I promise I'll be good. I ran away from the window as quick as I could. I wanted to tell my mama what I was seeing out there in the backyard. But when I came back to the window, she was gone. Now, Mr. Woodson was a man that was about six foot tall, medium complexion, a thin pencil mustache, very muscular and athletic in his build. A man that could make you feel cold and chilly when he just stared at you. He never spoke. He just stared. It seemed like his only interest in the world was trying to keep people off his porch, especially kids. No neighbors, no solicitors. If you came near his porch, he would come outside and tell you to go away. You absolutely couldn't go in his backyard. You never hardly saw people coming to his house. 
you definitely never seen anybody leave. In fact, the only person ever was that lady. The next time I remember seeing that lady was at the start of the summer. One of the hottest summers ever. So my mama had asked me to remove this nail that we had holding the window shut. Keep people from robbing us. And open that window up so it could get air coming from the alley. And I removed that nail and I was finally able to open up that window and I could look right across the alley right into Mr. Woodson's house. And what I saw over there was that lady. And that lady, she was naked. And she was skinny and on a dog leash and drinking from a bowl. She looked like a skeleton with skin pulled over. And I had never seen a naked woman that looked like that before. Well, actually, I had never seen a naked woman before. I had no sense in looking at her that she could be any other way. She didn't move like a naked person. I thought in my mind would. She didn't show any kind of shame or concern of being seen or just being uncomfortable with no clothes on. Wasn't sexual or exciting to see her. She seemed kind of natural in her movements, like a pet, an animal. But I knew that she didn't seem to be well kept. I guess she was thirsty. I remember I told my friend Jasper, I seen that lady on a leash drinking water from a bowl. And he said, maybe he's keeping her as a pet. And I heard people say that. Now, there was talk around the neighborhood that Mr. Woodson was keeping a woman in his house and in his backyard like a pet. And I heard the paper boy say the same thing. And the people who lived across the street talked about it. And some teenagers in the neighborhood also said they had seen it. Now, I myself kept animals of all sorts. Dogs, cats, and pigeons, and... They seemed a lot better cared for than her. I wondered to myself, how does he actually care for the woman, this lady? Does he look after her in a way I would look at my own pets? Does he take the lady outside to use the bathroom? Does she have fleas and ticks? Does she sleep mostly outside? Or does she sleep on the floor? But this would have been one of the many unverified stories of strangeness about people we didn't really know much about in the neighborhood that went on all the time. I recall that probably the next time I saw the lady, she was in an alley, naked, crying. I just walked up on her and it shocked me and I was going to run away and go in the other direction. And she said, no, 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 please, 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 don't tell Woodsy, please, 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 don't tell Woodsy. I, I'm just trying to get something to eat. He'll be mad. He'll kill me if, if, if he found out. 
I said, okay. And she's telling me this. To a kid. People often talked about her being chained in the backyard. But still, nobody acted. I mean, it was a hot summer and people were distracted by the weather and their everyday concerns. But people most often collectively said, people have the right to live or die any way they want to. But I recall one night, it was so, so hot. It was hard to sleep. Everybody in the house, including me and my mom and my stepdaddy, were getting up and down to get water. You could hardly even just breathe. It was just so hot and humid outside. And then you could hear the sound of banging and hitting coming from the alley between our house and Mr. Woodson's house. It was hard not to focus your attention on it. But it was so hot outside that the heat had warped the door in such a way that it was difficult to see outside the crack into the alleyway and the sweat was pouring down my face and got into my eyes and I could barely see the shadowy figures in the alley. Two bodies, these forms moving and wrestling back and forth in the alley. And I could hear this choking and gurgling, hitting, thumping, this grotesque sound of a body trying to say, I want to live. Then I heard Mr. Woodson's voice say, shut up, bitch. More thumping, more squealing, more choking sounds. Silence. My mom and my stepdaddy immediately said, well, we need to go outside. They wanted me to stay in the house, maybe, and get in the bed, but they didn't stop me from walking out with them. We walked outside the house and out front. All of our neighbors seemed to be out there. Everybody was out there. They couldn't help but be awakened by the thumping, the sounds. We get outside, and right in front of the house is the lady. She's laying right in front of the house, motionless. People are starting to look at her and speak. Who's she? Who she is? Who that? Who that is? Is that that lady? Yeah, that's that lady. Who live up over there? Yeah, live up over there. You reckon she was sick? Maybe she was sick. No, I don't think she was sick. What you think happened to her? I don't know what happened to her. You think it was the heat? No, I don't think it was the heat. Should we touch her? No, don't touch her. Who else know her? We don't know her. Are we going to call somebody? Maybe we shouldn't call nobody. And in the time of being outside... And the conversations going back and forth. Her body went from being loose to stiff again to loose. People were saying, don't touch her. Don't roll her over. 
what do you think happened to her? And no one considered calling the police. I mean, very few of us had phones at all in the neighborhood, and police often arrive only to search for criminals among the gathered crowd. Anybody who had long discussions with the police was often looked on with suspicion. And honestly, the mysterious death of a black person in my community was not uncommon. The police rarely have ever conducted a thorough crime scene investigation like on TV. A person's personal worth was the determining factor on whether or not the police were going to do anything. Somebody that was so unlikely to be valued would never become a drain on investigative manpower. So I don't know if it was the heat that killed that lady or the cold indifference of a community of people who believe that people have the right to live or die any way they want to. Holy shit. <laughs> I'm really extremely gooped to be here. Uh, I have been a really long time fan of the show, and uh, I made sure not to eat dairy today, and I said a little prayer, so <laughs> let's, we'll really be able to tell if God hates the homosexuals today. <laughs> Um, I remember the first night that I met my ex's best friend. My ex was really excited because this guy was coming down from D.C. And he was like, you guys are going to love each other. And I was 25 and this was my first relationship. And I was, had somehow landed this like extremely hot human who had like an insane amount of tattoos on his body and a really nice sharp jawline and he had this like really consistent and like full covering of facial hair which as an Asian man who can only grow like a toothbrush on my upper lip was like just incredibly appealing and the thing is it's not, it's, not, it's not even like a nice toothbrush it's like a roadside motel toothbrush where you like where you just kind of look at it and you're like does this even have a function? But we were in Hell's Kitchen and we were waiting outside a club called Therapy and his friend finally arrives. And my ex says, Justin, this is Blaine. And so I say hello and then he says hello. And I'm like feeling this real explosion of like platonic chemistry. And all of a sudden I'm seeing Blaine give me the once over. And then he looks over to my ex and he goes, oh, I didn't know that you were into Asians. And I look at my ex and I see that his face is like kind of crunched up. And I'm watching all of the cogs in his brain kind of grind to a halt. And I really want to reach out and hold his hand and say, I'm personally really grateful that your dick doesn't discriminate. Because it feels really good. But all I could think was, yeah, I get it. I don't know why you want to date me either. And then the bouncer waved us into the club, which was called Therapy. And I went to the bar, and I bought a whiskey ginger and a tequila shot. And then I was, like, moseying my way through all of these muscle marys. And there was a stage on the back. 
And because I'm an upstanding homosexual, I got up on the stage, and from where I stood, I could see all the lights in the club kind of like swinging around, and they cast this like blue light on the dance floor. And the thing about white people is that you need as much color in your skin as possible. So when someone shines a blue light on you, you look like a fucking ghost. <laughs> and so I was looking at all of these ghosts in front of me, and I became acutely aware of just how many there were. And at that very moment, Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball started playing. And here's a pro tip: if you have just been microaggressed, if you're in a club called therapy, and that defining Miley classic comes on, those are the three ingredients you need to have an existential crisis. <laughs> and all I could think about in that moment was how I had gotten here. When I first started dating in Sydney, I decided to join a website called Manhunt, which you know truly sounded like an activity that I'd be very interested in. Um, <laughs> I remember like logging onto the website for the first time, and the word "man" was in all caps and it was emblazoned in gold. And then right underneath it, it said over forty thousand two hundred and sixty men online now. And I looked at that. And I looked at the sign-up button, and in just my most primal voice, I said, "Well, get ready for number forty thousand two hundred and sixty-one, honey. Yeah, bam, bam." And so I got my profile together really quickly, and I started like browsing all of these men. And then I clicked on the first one, and his bio probably said something like "fine." It was like super unmemorable. And then right at the very bottom, it said "no rice, no spice, need apply." And here's another great way to have an existential crisis: be a queer kid. Watching a heteronormative society dictate to you how you should live your life, and then when you finally have the confidence to rebuke that, realizing that the community that you're wanting to walk into doesn't really want you there in the first place. And it wasn't just one profile that said this. There, there were many, but a lot of them didn't possess the same kind of like pizzazz that that one did. There were a lot of people who were just like, no Indians, no Asians, no black people. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Justin, decolonize your butthole. Like, why do you want to fuck so many white men? And like, you would be right. But I was a banana. And I'm not sure how many other bananas are in the crowd tonight, but a banana is basically someone who is yellow on the outside and white on the inside. You see, I this was like not something that I had just like anointed myself. I had been trained for this. When I was younger, I lived in Southeast Asia, and I was socialized in expatriate communities. And I always remember the way that my mother would teach my sister and I how to navigate conversations around race. She would sit at a marble table in the kitchen, and she had this like ferocious palm that she just fed like bottles and bottles of Vidal Sassoon extra strength hairspray, <laughs> and she had these very long fingernails that were painted red. And she would point them at me, and she'd say, "If anyone asks where you're from, you tell them that you're Australian." 
and then she say, "You are the offspring of two people who left a shitty town in Malaysia called Kuching to move to a shitty town in England called Brighton, where your father worked in room service and I worked illegally in a fish and chip shop, so that you could eventually have the opportunities that we never could." So that you could be the kind of Asian who spoke English as a first language. So that you could be the kind of Asian who didn't need a scholarship to go to a good university. So that you could be the kind of Asian who knew not to go <laughs> when he ate his noodles. And in Singapore and in, and in Malaysia, there's this is like colloquial thing that um, local people do when they speak English, where they add la onto the end of their sentence. And when my sister and I mimicked this, my mother would take those like sharp red pincers and she would dig them into my skin. And maybe that sounds severe, and maybe I definitely like hyperdramatize that like a tiny bit just for your entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> But it was with this intensity that I understood what my mother was trying to teach me, and that it was that I had to embody some sort of like ethnic palatability, so that I could have the capability of passing in a way that my parents never could. And that was the kind of Asian that I was supposed to be. When I first started going out, there was this club in Sydney called the Midnight Shift. Except nobody called it that. It was to everyone on the strip called Chopsticks and Walking Sticks because it was frequented by older white men and young Asians. It was like these two groups on the perimeter of Gay Desire had converged on this space. Because it was some sort of like gateway for desire, and it was this like dark and dank space that played like way too much Taylor Swift and smelled kind of faintly of the bleach that was used to clean my high school cafeteria. And every hour in it was like last call at any other bar, where even if you were dancing, your eyes were always darting around the room looking for somebody to settle on. And when your eyes finally locked. With someone else, it was less about lust, and more about knowing that this was as good as it was going to get for the night. It was after this sort of dance that I had sex for the first time. I remember his skin was like pale, and he had these glassy, protruding eyes and these like bluish lips. And I definitely don't remember his name. And I remember taking him back to my basement apartment and having him explain to me how he had composed a piece of music for Chainsaw. And Chainsaw was a euphemism for literally nothing because he had actually composed a piece of music for Chainsaw. <laughs> But. That was not enough to scare me away, <laughs> and so we were on my bed, and he was on top of me, and he did this thing where he kept like chomping on my nipples, and my nipples are like kind of big and juicy, so like we can call a snack a snack, right? Like I have a certain amount of empathy for that, but it got to the point where I was like, I'm in pain, so I was like, you got to stop, you've got to stop, and so he slowly like palmed his way up to my face. And then when his nose was touching mine, he said, "Suck me, la." And he felt me kind of recoil, and he saw that my face registered some shock. And he was like, "Don't worry, 
my best friend is Malaysian. And in that moment, I remembered what kind of Asian I was. I was a grain of rice, designed to be washed of my impurities, then designed to be pushed around your plate, designed to be in service of the source on your meat. And so when he sat on top of my face, I sucked him, la. And then when he did everything else, I let him. And I remember my head on the foot of my bed, and I turned my head to the right, and I had this teeny tiny window that looked out onto the grass of my backyard. And all I could think about was how I had waited so long to experience desire in my body. And now that it had finally happened, all I wanted was to not be in my body. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> it was after that that I decided, well, people clearly didn't get the memo. I was not doing a very good job of demonstrating how much of a banana I am. So I decided to start telling people that I was half Hawaiian, which, like, is just not smart. I remember <laughs> I went to this Middle Eastern restaurant with this, like, very beautiful man, and he was very earnestly trying to have a conversation with me about my dual citizenship. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I've not done enough due diligence to figure out the logistics of this lie. <laughs> the most time that I had spent in Hawaii was a week at the Sheraton in Maui with my family. <laughs> and it showed. There are only so many stories you can tell about sitting in the ocean, apparently. Even after... I stopped telling people that I was half Hawaiian. I was convinced that I had somehow managed to clean myself of my ethnicity. And it wasn't until that night in therapy with Blaine and with Miley and my ex that I realized that no matter how hard I tried to be a banana, people would always see me as Asian. Because I am. <laughs> Needless to say, that relationship didn't work out. We lasted 12 weeks, so we didn't even make it to our first trimester. Um, and several months later, I would hear about this party in Brooklyn called Bubble Tea, which a writer once said was a night for slasians. And I remember walking into it for the first time and seeing it like decorated in red and gold with these like cherry blossoms hanging from the ceiling. Or maybe that's just like some sort of sick oriental fantasy that I've projected onto the memory. <laughs> and it turns out that I'm just like a horrible banana still. <laughs> and the room was packed with people who looked like me from wall to wall. And I felt so wooden. It felt like I had crashed somebody else's life. 
And I remember looking at the stage and seeing this one guy with these like half moon glasses pulled all the way down to his nostrils. And he was carrying like this little baby purse on his shoulder. And he had these tiny baby heels in white and these white jeans and this white spaghetti strap with all of these little jewels on it that spelled out bubble tea. And I was transfixed by him because every time the light hit his chest, it radiated out. And I was watching him move on stage with so much freedom and with so much agency. And I instantly recognized that it was a way that I had never been present in my own body. And I really desperately wanted to know what it felt like. And I was awakened from my stupor by my friend who grabbed my two hands and started like violently shaking me. And it was because of that that I started dancing. And the moment that I fully committed to joining those people on that floor was like the moment that I ate the Spam Musubi from Kitchen in Brooklyn for the first time. where they take like a piece of Spam and they put some sugar on it and then they take a blowtorch and they caramelize it and they put it on top of a block of rice and they put a seaweed like strap around it and you're given this like savory sweet experience that you never knew you really needed. (laughs) And if you were to tell me that that's actually how they make Spam Musubi in Hawaii, I'd be like, I don't fucking know. I spent a week at the Sheraton in Maui. (laughs) (laughs) But that night that I felt that it was the very first time that I understood what it meant to tend to a part of my being that for so long had been crying out for recognition, but I had chosen to dismiss for so long. And I know that I will always be a product of my history, but I know that I have the power to change the trajectory of my future. And so I'm grateful that I found myself on the dance floor at Bubble Tea that night because I was being shown the truth. And I'm really grateful that I'm here on this stage telling you all a story about just how much I hated myself because hopefully that means that I've stopped. Thank you. Okay.
This is Risk. This is Maggie Rogers behind me now, and we just heard from the absolutely fabulous Justin J. Wee. Also, Justin is a phenomenal photographer, all kinds of photography. You should check out on Instagram at DJ Dumpling or at JustinJWee.com. <laughs> JustinJWee.com. <laughs> if you're enjoying the stories, we're doing something a little different right now. We are putting out two Best of Risk episodes back-to-back on the same day. The Best of Risk 16 should be in your queue right now, too. So there's lots of... We just had too many stories to choose from. I mean, the show has really been on a roll lately. So that's why... You know... I taught my therapist how to download the show (laughs) at my last session. We were sitting there with his phone with me teaching him how to do it. Do that with your friends. Get them to listen to these two best of episodes because they're just so chock full of great stuff. Before Justin, we heard from Ray Christian. Oh my God. One of our dearest friends. Ray is like family to us. And like I said, He puts out a phenomenal podcast of his own called What's Ray Saying? And you can find him all over. Wherever stories are told, Ray will show up and blow people away. You know what else will blow people away? Is if you show them the digital scale you got for measuring your envelopes for stamps.com. You don't have time for getting in traffic and going to the post office, all the parking and lugging around mail and packages. It's a real hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Post Office right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, a warehouse sending out thousands of packages. You just use your own computer and printer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter or package or class of mail anywhere you want to send. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and that digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Now, we have two more absolutely mind-blowing stories for the end of the show here. In a little bit, we're going to hear from my cousin-in-law, Marcella Allison. Marcella's story was recorded in my hometown, Cincinnati, Ohio, a town of (laughs) many Allisons. But before that, we're going to hear one of the most talked-about stories that we've done in a while that we featured on the show. Britt Adams was very new to storytelling when he appeared at our last live show that we did in Denver, Colorado. Some listeners have had questions about the story, and Britt has been answering them. I think he could do an expanded version of it at some point. But that night, energy in that room was just remarkable. Britt was so nervous and the audience was so with him. And so it just makes for one hell of a recording. Let's get to it. This is Britt Adams at the Risk Live show in Denver, Colorado with a story we call Reunion. I'm back in my 
When I was six months old, I was adopted from Seoul, South Korea by an entirely white family from the South. A mom from Alabama, dad from Tennessee, a cowboy-loving, football-playing older brother, and a Southern Belle, just perfect baby sister. Now, just to put into perspective how white and Southern my family actually is, I have over 50 extended family members in Alabama that I have never met before. <laughs> Disregard the hundreds upon hundreds of members that I have in pretty much every Southern state, but just in Alabama, 50 that I had never met. <laughs> Insane. Every year for Christmas, my family and I always listen to Randy Travis's holiday season Christmas special. <laughs> because he has the voice of an angel. It's true, he does. <laughs> and to put the cherry on top, my family still owns a big-ass dairy farm in McDonough, Georgia, that I grew up on for the majority of my teenage years. I had white friends, white teachers, white coaches, grew up in this entirely white culture, and I was happy. You see, growing up, my brother and my father, they were my heroes. You know, I wanted to be just like them in every single way. Now, my father was very strict, very formal, hence me calling him father, but he taught me the values that I still hold near and dear to my heart today. He showed me the value of hard work from being a farmer to going all the way through college to having a corporate job to now being a senior level position at a Fortune 500 company. Like, I am the man I am today because of him. And my brother, he, he was truly, still is, my superhero. Like, everything he did, I wanted to be. The way he acted, what he said, the way he, anything. I just wanted to be him. In fact, I wanted to be like him so bad that through all of middle school, I wore a cowboy hat, boots, and a big-ass belt buckle to school. <laughs> it's true. Because my brother thought it was cool, and I wanted to be just like him. In December 2016, my family and I all gathered in Nashville, Tennessee for our biggest family reunion ever. 250 of my closest relatives all gathered in my grandparents' house. Yeah, big family. And at this point, I was a senior in college, about to graduate, and I hadn't seen my immediate family in almost three years. So, needless to say, I was excited. So I got off the plane, got into the rental car, drove to my grandparents' house, and the first person I saw out of the car was one of my aunts, who I hadn't seen in almost 15 years. So I closed the door, run up to her, go, hi, auntie, how's it going? Open up my arms for a big old hug. Instead of, you know, giving me the normal response, the hug, my aunt shuts her eyes as tight as she can, flexes every muscle in her body, and goes as stiff as a board, waiting for me to walk into the house. Now, immediately I think, okay, here come the Asian jokes, you know, time to time it happens, whatever, not a big deal. And I look around to see if anyone's noticed anything, but they'd all gone inside, so I didn't really pay much mind, and I walked inside. Now, then I was at the kitchen with my brother, waiting for some food, and my little baby cousins just run up to me, about 15 or 20 of them, with their tiny jaded hands, and I go, hey kids, how's it going? I give them high fives. And simultaneously, they all take their hands, put them to their eyeballs, pull their lids back, and the entire room laughs. 
okay, that's not very funny, right? Like, what's going on? Like, I know there are jokes and there are backhand comments, but I've never seen anything like this. Like, what's going on? I turned to my brother for some support, and he's right behind me, just hunched over, just dying laughing. And he finally comes to and he says, hey, man, that was some funny shit, right? It happens every year. All right, let's go get some food, man. It happens every year? That shit was funny. I don't understand. Am I just jet-lagged? I'm just so confused. I don't... My family's never said anything like that. What's going on? And so my mind continues to spin, and I try to get just all the food I can and just go and sit down so I can think. But before I can even get to the cold turkey, a swarm of our family's dogs just run into the kitchen, knocking over chairs, and then run out to the other side of the dining room. But before that last dog can get to the side, one of my uncles from the back of the line says, Hey, Britt, there go the dogs. Don't go try to eat them. And I kid you not, it's like someone just landed the biggest punchline at Madison Square Garden because what seems like the entire house just erupts with laughter. And I'm just standing there going, what the actual fuck is happening? Like, what, what is this? This isn't normal. I, I don't remember anything like this. Why y'all laughing? And so I quickly just grab my plate, get some silverware, go to a corner table by myself and just sit and I think. I think for about an hour, and slowly but surely, all these memories start washing over my mind. And I begin thinking of every family reunion, every family event, holiday that I've been with my family. And slowly but surely, these two distinct pictures come to mind. The picture of what I thought my life was, and the reality of it. And the reality of it is, these backhand comments were a lot worse than what I thought they were. You see, you all have to understand, right? Like, for 22 years, these were my people, right? This was my family. Like, I thought it was normal for every single one of your family members to make fun of you because you failed your driver's license test because it was just inevitable. I thought it was normal for all of your friends to make fun of you and laugh when you won a video game because you just had the Asian gene. Hell, my head coach for soccer in high school gave me the name Chinky, and everyone caught on to it, and I thought it was funny. It sounds absurd, but you just have to understand, this was my life. This was my environment that I was in. I didn't know any better. And when I went away to college, I very quickly realized that most families don't say these kind of things. Most friends don't make fun of you because you have squinty eyes or yellow skin. And on top of everything that was happening at my family reunion, my head just started spinning and I just got so angry and frustrated that I just, I had to leave, right? So I get up, walk to the dining room table where the majority of the adults are, including my father and mother. And I walk over to my father and I say, sir, I'm sorry, but my head is just really killing me right now. I, I think I'm just going to go to the hotel and lie down for a bit and come back. And I look at my father, and he's got these glossy eyes, red cheeks. He's about four or five Jack and Cokes in. And he's sitting in his chair, holding his glass, and he leans back a little bit and says, Son, 
come on, we just got here. Have a seat, get a drink. We were just talking about how Trump is finally gonna make this country great again. And I said, yeah, Dad, uh, I'm just really tired. My head's killing me. I'm just gonna go lie down for a bit. And I mean, I didn't even vote for Trump. And immediately I knew I had fucked up. Because my entire red-minded family stopped talking and all eyes were just on me and him. My father puts down his drink, leans forward in his chair and says, <clears throat> oh, what was that, son? Sorry, I couldn't quite hear you. And I knew I had fucked up, so I was trying to just revert the conversation as fast as I could. And I said, sorry, Dad, yeah, yeah, I just, my head hurts. I just want to go lie down. What the fuck did you just say? My father had gotten up, and he was toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with me. I could smell the whiskey breath on him, and I looked around to see if this was really happening, and my entire family had the exact same expression on their face. I just tried, and I tried, and I didn't know what to say until finally all of these thoughts and everything just poured out, and I finally just said, yeah, Dad, I didn't vote for Trump. What's the big deal, huh? It doesn't even matter. And the next thing I know, my father grabs me by my shirt collar and hoists me into the air. And I'm screaming, and I'm shouting for anyone to just help. Like, what is going on? I'm in complete shock. And he takes me, and he throws me into a 72-inch plasma screen TV. My body hits the floor, the TV falls on top, crashing, glass shards and plastic are cutting all along my body. Before I know it, my brother's on top of me beating the absolute shit out of me. Punch one, punch two, and I am just in complete shock. I don't fight back, I don't try to defend myself because that's my fucking brother. And while he's beating on top of me, my father comes over and he starts pounding the shit out of me. Punch one, punch two. And then blackness. I wake up in a hospital bed. Now the doctor said that The only reason I survived with just 15 broken bones, including a broken collarbone, a dislocated shoulder, and torn ligaments and tendons in both of my legs, was because the neighbors across the street had heard the commotion. And they had come over, and when they saw what was happening, they threw my brother and father off of me while my entire family just watched. I was in the hospital for three days, 72 hours, and I I don't remember too much because I was on so many pain meds, I kept going in and out, but I do remember the first time I came into it. The doctor came in and he said, is there anyone that we can call? Anyone that we can contact because you won't be able to leave here by yourself? And I said, yeah, um, um, my father. He'll come get me. So the doctor leaves, and he comes back a couple minutes later. And he says, he's not picking up. Is there anyone else? Yeah. My mother. 
She'll come get me. My sister? My brother? No one came. No one came, and for those 72 hours, I was just by myself, laid to a bed with an IV drip, just with my own thoughts. And for those 72 hours, I actually convinced myself that that incident was my fault. (laughs) That if I could have just been more like my brother, right? If I could have been more like my father, if I could have just forgotten the jokes, just blended in. If I was just whiter, you know? None of this would have happened, and my entire life wouldn't have been turned upside down, and my superheroes wouldn't have turned into my supervillains. Now, it took six weeks just for me to be able to fully walk again. And I can't tell you exactly when it happened or where I was, but eventually I realized that shit wasn't my fault. I realized that just because I wasn't from here and I didn't have white skin and I didn't necessarily fit in physically, that should have no indifference as to who my family is and how my friends treat me. So on August 21st, 2017, I packed up all of my things, talked to the very few friends that I still had, reached out to my family who didn't respond, and I moved. And that's what I've been doing for the past year and a half until five days ago, I moved here. (laughs) And I have no friends here, so if anyone wants to get a drink later, let me know, (laughs) because... But in all seriousness, I moved here, and I got to tell y'all, for the first time in my entire life, I finally feel happy. For the first time in my life, I feel like I don't have to just fit in or be someone I'm not or conform to some bullshit. And I love it. (laughs) I really do. Now, don't get me wrong. I will always be a Southern kid at heart. I will always eat my grits and gravy, listen to Randy Travis and Kenny Chesney sing Silver Bells. I will always say yes ma'am, no sir, or gender non-binary pronouns. I will do it. Because that's just who I am. And yes, my life may not be the best and I'm going through some things with my family, but that's okay. Because I'm working on it and time will tell. And that's fine. But I cannot wait for what Denver has to show me and what I can make of this life. Thank you.
on rising up, but I'll keep on rising up. Every day I'm rising up. Yeah, I keep on rising up, but I'll keep on rising up. Every day I'm rising up. To get hurt, need to get ditched. Do you need to get let down? Need some wonderful shoe. Need to get dropped just to fool your true self out. I keep on rising up, but I'll keep on rising up. Every day I'm rising up. I keep on rising up, but I'll keep on rising up. For the last 10 years, whenever my life is completely crazy and I need to run away, I would call my good friend Joanne Gates. And Joanne is the director of the Retreat Center at Knobs Haven in Loretto, Kentucky. And I had this short little email I would send her, and it would say, Dear Joanne, any room at the inn? And because Joanne knew what my life was like, the answer was always, yes, come on down. So that's how, in uh, March of 2015, I find myself flying down the Bluegrass Parkway, headed towards Loretto, Kentucky. I got Jason Isbell on the radio. I got the windows cranked. I'm, like, singing along at the top of my lungs. And about two and a half hours later, I pull up this long drive to the mother house. I park my car. I grab my backpack, my journals, my pens, and I climb three flights of perfectly polished, within an inch of their lives, wood stairs to the top of the academy building. And there's this little room at the top. There's this beautiful double bed, little quilt. I throw my stuff on the bed. I open these huge green shutters, and the windows overlook Baden Pond, put on my tennis shoes, and I'm headed out to walk the labyrinth and to meditate in the little chapel out at the Cedars of Peace. And I get maybe, I don't know, half a mile down the little gravel road, and my cell phone goes off. And I'm looking at it, and I, I don't recognize the number. And I answer, and I'm like, hello? And this voice goes, Ms. Allison? Ms. Allison? Yes? Ms. Allison, this is Amber from that facility in St. Louis. And um, I'm just calling to tell you that you're going to have to need and come get Jake by Friday, your son, because um, we're closing. And I said, what are you talking about? I just paid to fly this kid from Cincinnati to St. Louis. He is supposed to be there for three months. What are you talking about? And I hang up the phone, and I want to take it and throw it as hard as I can at the tree. But I don't. I turn around, I go marching back down the gravel farm road, up to the first floor of the academy building, over to Joanne's office, bam, bam, bam on the door. And Joanne goes, 
Marcella, you're here. You made it. And I say, I can't take this anymore. And she goes, come in, sit down. And there's these two little rocking chairs and there's a little table and there's a candle and some sage, right? And we sit down and she takes my hands in hers and she says, how are you? And I say, you know that facility in St. Louis? You know the one that looked like some million dollar spa on the internet? The one that promised they could deal with mental health and addiction, that they were going to cure Jake and send him back out into a contributing member of society? I'm like, get this. They are closing because there's more money in detox. I have spent three months getting the insurance approved so that he could stay there for like, I don't know, three to six months. And he's been there two weeks and they are sending him home and I am done and I cannot do this anymore. And she looks at me and she leans in and she says in this incredibly calm, steady voice, then don't. And I say, you don't understand. Nobody wants these kids. The mental health institutions don't want them because they say they're just addicts. We don't do that here. And the rehab centers don't want them because they say, oh, they're crazy. We don't do that here. And the insurance companies sure as hell don't want them. And there is no place else for him to go. I have been running a rehab center and a psychiatric ward out of my living room for five years, and I cannot do this one day more. And she says, then don't. And I say, you're not listening to me. There is no place else to send him. I have to bring him home. But how is that fair to his brother, Nathan? He shouldn't have to grow up in a psychiatric ward. He's only 16. I can't do this. I cannot do this. And she says, then don't. And the next day, I get up. I pack up all my stuff again. I head back down the Bluegrass Parkway. I am staring at the sky, waiting for answers that aren't coming. And I'm thinking, how in the hell did we end up here? Jake was this sweet kid. He played blues guitar. He drew portraits, charcoal portraits of muddy waters and Homer that like could hang in a museum. He wrote me the most beautiful valentines. One time he took all of his uh, paintings, he was maybe fourth grade from the new school that he'd done over all the years, and he put price tags on them, you know, like 50 cents, a dollar, like two dollars for the really big ones, and he hung them all around our living room, and he goes to the kitchen, and he cut up some cheese, and he got a bottle of open wine, and he had an art opening in my living room, right? We would go to the Appalachian Festival every year. We'd eat, like, corn dogs and lemon shake-ups and those, like, fried elephant ear things, right? And I am thinking, how? How is that boy the same boy that has tried every drug on the planet? 
My sister used to say that it was like the perfect Montessori drug addict because he just followed his natural curiosity to ecstasy and cocaine and methamphetamines and methadrone and bath salts. And I'm thinking, why would someone want to snort my lavender-scented bath salts? I mean, isn't a neti pot easier, right? But it turns out it's not quite the same thing. It is like this psychotic mix, right, that causes, like, seizures and psychosis and insomnia and scrambles your brains like that old commercial, right, with the egg, right, in the frying pan. And I don't know how that boy became this boy, But I know that I can't do this anymore. And I'm driving down the Bluegrass Parkway, headed back to Cincinnati, and I'm looking at that berm, right? And I'm thinking, if I just let this drift about three feet to the right, my car is going to go through the guardrail, it's going to go down the ravine, and I do not have to get up and do this tomorrow And I don't have to be the kind of mother who abandons her son. And I take a deep breath, and I look at the sky, and I am thinking, I am done. I am so done. And Jake, Jake has gone from using methamphetamines to dropping out of college. He's attempted suicide four times in five years. He's climbed into the bathtub with his amplifier on Christmas Eve because no one told him that an amplifier is designed to turn off when it hits water. Good to know. He's tried to hang himself in my garage on Mother's Day. And I am at the end. There is nothing left to give. And I wish that I could tell you that I was sitting here praying and begging for mercy, but actually what I do at that moment is get really pissed. As my girlfriend says, I take my shoes off. I'm like, you son of a bitch. What kind of sick fuck makes people suffer like this? Who the hell are you? And why are you doing this to me? Do you hear me? I'm done. You take him back. He's yours. I cannot do this anymore. And I stopped to get gas in Lexington. And in the back of my mind, I hear Joanne. Then don't. And I head across the river back into Cincinnati, and I hear, then don't. And I pull up my driveway. I get out. I throw all my crap back in the house. I go up to my husband, Tom, and I say, I am done. I cannot do this anymore. We cannot run a rehab center and a psychiatric ward in our house. I am done, and he says, me too. So the next day, we get up, we drive down to Clifton, and we rent a little bitty apartment above the graders that's about the size of my dining room table. And then we head over to St. Vincent de Paul off of Glenway Avenue, and I got my little cart, and I'm like, ooh, look, four neon green coffee cups, three pieces of lovely china, good set of nicely used silver, huge ashtray, an old armchair, throw it all in the back of the car. We take everything of Jake's from the house, put it in the van, head over to the Kroger. We get that huge bag of fake Fruit Loops, big thing of um, pizza rolls, 
a bunch of burritos, anything that goes in the microwave, some milk, some orange juice. We stock the whole apartment. We go to pick up Jake at the airport. He gets off the plane. He's like, hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. He's just glad to be home, right? He reeks of cigarettes. He's got a bag of all his clothes. We put him in the car, and we do not drive home. We drive right down the street to this little bitty apartment, and we bring him upstairs, and we drop him off, and I say, dude, here's the deal. Your rent is paid for 30 days. You got food in the refrigerator. Your medication is right there on the table. You've got your clothes. There's an AA meeting down the street. It's on you now. Give me a call in the morning. We get in the car. We head back home. And again, I wish I could tell you that I stayed up all night, like praying to the Virgin Mary to save my son. But I was so tired. I drank a glass of wine, and I went to bed. Next morning, I'm not even awake yet, right? My phone rings, and I figure it's one of two things. It's either Jake or it's the police telling me i got to come identify the body. I answer the phone. Hello? Hey, Mom, it's Jake. I'm up. I've had a cup of coffee. The AA meeting starts in 30 minutes. I'm headed down there. Hey, I just wanted to say I really love this place. This is really great. And I am looking at my phone like aliens have just landed on the planet. And I'm like, uh, that's great, dude. That's good, good, right? And every day after that, I'm like waiting for that other shoe to drop. But instead, he goes like one month sober, then two months sober, then three months sober. And one day I say to him, like, dude, what's the deal? Like, what happened? And he goes, you know, Mom, when you left me in that apartment and you said it was on me, I didn't have to feel guilty for ruining your life anymore. And I'm like, whoa, right? So at this point, we ain't using the bath salts, but the brain is still a little scrambled. So he comes over to dinner at our house one night, and he is completely paranoid and anxious, and he's smoking cigarettes, he's walking in and out, he's like, and I say, let me take you back home. So we jump in the car, I'm driving him back down to the little apartment here, and we're coming through Mount Airy Forest, and he is just being an asshole. And I say, what is with you? We are all here trying to help you. Like, everything we are doing is to help you. Why are you being such a jerk to me? And that is when he tells me about the code. It turns out that everything I say actually has a different meaning. And it turns out that I love you means basically you're a piece of shit. And I say, dude, what are you talking about? And he says, Mom, the radio is broadcasting my thoughts, and the movie screen is showing my life. The people in the apartment next door to me can hear the thoughts in my head. And for just a moment, I let myself imagine what that would be like if that was true, because in his mind, in Jake's mind, that is true. So I imagine what would it be like if you had no privacy, not even in your own mind, if you could never have a thought that was not broadcast. And I suddenly understood all those suicide attempts. And I said to him, Bud, you have my word. If we ever get to the point where there is nothing else we can do, I swear to God, I'll help you do this. I'll help you commit suicide. I will not make you live your life like that. 
but we are not there yet. We have not done everything. Just stay with me a little bit longer and promise you'll keep trying. And he says, okay, mom. And the next week, we're headed off to Dr. McDonald's office, and we're in the car, and Jake is really anxious, and his leg is going bam, bam, bam on the floor, and his arm's going boom, boom, boom on the door, and he's punching the radio station buttons one after another. And I think, you know what? Screw it. Just screw it all. And I reach over, and I hit the button for the golden oldies station, (laughs) and I just let it rip. In the day we sweated out on the streets of a runaway American dream. And he looks at me like I have lost my mind. I don't even care at this point. At night we ride through mansions of glory on suicide machines. And he loses it. He is cracking up so hard. I am doing 60 in a 30-mile zone. We peel into Dr. McDonald's office. Jake and I are rocking out. We're screaming, tramps like us. Baby, we were born to run. And that's when I stop trying to control him, fix him, save him, make him do the thing that I think that he needs to do. And he begins to trust me. And we begin to talk about this code. And we begin to do check-ins that are kind of like Peta Malark in The Hunger Games when he has the tracker jacker, remember? And he would have to ask Katniss, real, not real, about his memories. So Jake will call me and say, Mom, they were talking about me in English class today when we were reading this poem, real or not real. And we started to use the Socratic method. Well, if it was real, what would that mean? Then that would mean this. So if that's not true, then this is not true. And then he begins to trust my husband with check-ins. And then his grandma goes to NAMI, to the National Alliance of Mental Illness class, And she starts to do check-ins. And then he starts to ask his AA buddies to do check-ins. And then he says, Mom, I want to go back to school. And then he passes one class. And then two. And last semester, he just got straight A's at the University of Cincinnati. And he got his one-year coin. And I finally understood that all those years... When I was trying to save Jake, the only one who could save Jake's life was Jake. And the only one who could save my life was me. And the only life that any of us can ever save is our own. Thank you.
that is all for the best of risk number 15 and look for the best of risk number 16 because it should be in your queue right now as well behind me now is bruce springsteen and we just heard from my cousin-in-law marcella allison she can be found at marcellaallison.com and you can also find her book there she collected wit and wisdom on life and business by female entrepreneurs it's called why didn't anybody tell me this shit before so go find it at marcellaallison.com and we're so proud of jake allison as well kudos and keep on keeping on Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. Now, to pitch us your stories, just go to risk-show.com slash submissions, and everything you need to know about pitching us is there. If you want to learn a little bit more about storytelling, we have a school. It's called thestorystudio.org. Just go there and look up our classes. They can be one-on-one online, our corporate workshops, a whole lot of offerings in storytelling training at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. But to live-